0: Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and I'm excited to have James Law, the founder of MANA. MANA are empower- empowering tech leaders, career advisors, catered teachers, lifestyle gurus, and many others to host one-on-one sessions offering live classes and build long-term follower bases who fund their work. Uh, MANA has raised $1.5 million pre-seed round led by Flash Ventures. Prior to entrepreneurship, James worked at SoftBank Vision Fund advising world-leading technology companies like ARM and Uber on how to crane sustainably a weather crisis and leverage their Capabilities for social good. He was also McKinsey consultant, serving consumer, private equity, and social sector clients on growth strategy. James done his bachelor's from LSE. Welcome to the show, James.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be on.
0: Awesome. So you know uh, you have a very interesting journey because you uh, you were you're in Hong Kong, and you know you uh, you rejected you know some, some of the offers from other universities, and you 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 were running your charity, and you know you were part of the protest uh, or the uh, how, how did that journey come on to, uh, you know, going to SoftBank and, you know, uh, getting into entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, um, I found out I wanted to be an entrepreneur quite early in my life. Uh, I was 16 years old when I uh, rejected all my university offers and went on the streets and uh, became a protester. Um, at the time, there was a massive protest in Hong Kong uh, against national education. And there was a 13-year-old kid called Joshua Wong leading a massive protest. So. Um, I was leading a bunch of student unions, and we decided to go on the streets. Uh, It was quite crazy, and uh, we were lucky, and the government retracted all their um, controversial policies. And so I was left with no university offers going, what am I going to do with my life? Um, So uh, I ended up starting a charity in Hong Kong that trained students uh, in debating. Um, I loved it. Uh, We had the Chief Justice come on board as our patron, and we had lots of great companies supporting us. Um, So for the first time, at like 16, 17, I started my first company. Uh, I was so young I couldn't even sign the documents to register the company, so it's quite crazy. Um, but uh, we got it all set up, and that was how it all started. Uh, and I realized that education was what I was passionate about. I realized that entrepreneurship was something I wanted to go into. Um, so in the following years, I eventually came to university in London. Um, I uh, studied politics, thought I was going to become some politician. That didn't work out. And so I ended up becoming a McKinsey consultant and you know, sold out completely and did the corporate world for a while. Um, and so I, I sort of transitioned between McKinsey and then back to the social sector a bit um, right after McKinsey, following a, a partner who wanted to start a youth employment charity. Uh, I worked there for a while, and then I moved to SoftBank Vision Fund because another McKinsey partner actually moved there uh, and invited me to join him. And so at, at Vision Fund, I worked a lot with um, you know companies like WeWork and Arm on turning them around in the case of WeWork when the IPO was failing, uh, and then with Arm working on um, expanding them into other countries. Um, but then it was really towards the end of my time at South Bank, uh, you know, around seven or eight months ago, um, I realized that I'd done a lot of the sort of big company stuff, a lot of the turnarounds, a lot of the interesting technology growth equity type uh, things. But um, I really felt like I was veering quite far away from what I was truly passionate about, uh, which was, again, in education and in entrepreneurship. Uh, and so I ended up deciding to take the leap. Uh, so yeah, that's how it all started.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, super interesting and lo- a lot of interesting, uh, uh, you know, uh, things you've talked about. Uh, uh, you know, uh, when, when you moved to to London and you 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 know you got to uh, McKinsey and so on, how how did you how did you decide about you know looking at opportunities as a, as an immigrant uh, and you know how did you get those opportunities in these companies?
1: Yeah, so uh, McKinsey was genuinely a very uh, it was an extremely lucky that happened to me. So uh, for context, I applied to three jobs uh, when I graduated from university. Right. So McKinsey was one of them. Uh, and I actually got rejected from every other offer aside from McKinsey. So, so it was literally the only job, the last option I had, uh, which is quite crazy. And um, it actually happened because when I was in second year, um, I was uh, talking to a bunch of people who were quite interesting, uh, who, who were sort of mentors to me. And, um, and one of them happened to be from McKinsey. And he was like, hey, you should try applying. It's actually a great place. Uh, You have no idea what you want to do. The political thing is not going to happen. You can't need to find a commercial path. Um, You need to find ways to maximize your exposure so you can figure out what you want to do later. Uh, So it was kind of my way of deferring a decision on what I wanted wanted to do in my life. Um, And so I ended up applying at the end of my second year. um, I got rejected at the final interview. Um, I did reasonably well in the first interview. And then in my final interview, I just completely crashed because I had no idea how case interviews really worked. Um, And once I hit a, a proper partner, it was like, oh my God, I just completely froze. Um, but one of the partners actually really remembered me. And so the following year, when I applied for the full-time job, um, I emailed him and I was like, Hey, I'm actually applying again. And he was like, Oh, that's great. Um, you know, go for it. And, uh, and so he actually allowed me to bypass one of the tests and I, I sort of managed to go through to the interview stages earlier. Um. And so, you know, it, it went much more smoothly the second time around and finally got through. Um, but yeah, when I got to McKinsey, it was really just a way for me to defer a decision on, on whether I wanted to go into entrepreneurship or go into corporate, anything like that, because I just had zero business understanding. I didn't do a second year internship or anything like that. So I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, and uh, it was a great testing ground to begin with.
0: Yeah, no, it, it's interesting because, you know, uh, you, you followed up the next year and, and you, you got the job through a lot of people, uh, just, just give up on the, on the first rejection. So, uh, uh, so that's, that's, uh, that shows, you know, uh, resilience. And, uh, you know, uh, how, uh, how was your experience in, in SoftBank? And, you know, since you were trying to turn around, uh, companies yeah, in, in SoftBank and, uh, you know, you, you also worked with companies like Ola and Uber. Uh, in in the growth strategies what did what was some of the learnings in uh in, in, you know uh, these high growth startups and you know what are some of the growth strategies that they are using which can help out uh you know listeners who are trying to grow the companies
1: yeah so um I chose to go to softbank because it was such a uh Um, it was such a unique opportunity. Um, It was like a platform where you can pretty much, you know, pursue your dreams and, you know, whatever you wanted to do. There was so much freedom in the company. Um, And uh, when I agreed to join that McKinsey partner uh, who sort of invited me to come over, uh, you know, I, I basically recognized that there was no fixed role. I had no idea what I was going to do. I'll just jump in and, and figure it out. So, you know, for my first six months, I was basically uh, like a one-man show running investment operations on on the SoftBank Group International side because there was no one to do it. And they were like, hey, James, just go figure it out. Right. So, so I ended up going to do that. Um, and then after that, I actually moved over to the Vision Fund and worked very closely, um, you know, initially with WeWork and then later with Arm. Um what I would say is basically uh, I don't think there's any sort of profound insight I could offer um, on growth, but I think um, there's two uh, cautionary tales that I think um, everyone at SoftBank sort of figured out around that time. Um, the first is that um, growth at all costs uh, is extremely dangerous when you don't have the right governance around it um, and the right um, you know type of leadership to drive it, and so. We are in this amazing Silicon Valley culture where you know, founders are worshiped and uh, often they're inspirational and they're amazing. Um, and it is absolutely fantastic. Um, but even the great founders, they need to surround themselves with great people uh, and set up the structures necessary to prevent themselves from making bad decisions. Uh, and I think a lot of the hubris from the early stages um, of mass investing was that you kind of need to figure out what's the right governance structure to, uh, to make growth at all costs work. Um, and then the second piece is that um, We're increasingly in these markets where um, you kind of need to go international from day one, uh, and uh, it doesn't really make sense to set artificial geographical boundaries for what you do. Um, It's a little bit different in some physical businesses. Like if you're trying to do, you know, food delivery, transport, there's always going to be some geographical component to what you're doing. But even then, it actually makes a ton of sense to go international early. Uh, So even when you look at some of the uh, latest 10-minute grocery delivery apps, they're basically hitting multiple geographies at once because it is becoming a massive winner-takes-all type market. Uh, And if you can raise like big capital upfront, the imperative is to take like, you know, um, a lot of geographical coverage so that you really have a footing in the market uh, and, and go across quickly. So, um, so I see a lot of markets like this, and even when we're growing MANA right now, um, we never set geographical boundaries for ourselves. And we started from day one uh, to be extremely international. And it's paid off lots of dividends uh, in that, you know, from day one, we had people from the Philippines, from Mauritius, from Malaysia, from the UAE. Um, and uh, we didn't really feel like we were London-based anymore. We could actually do a lot more things that way. So, um, so yeah, we have a unique opportunity to go global, but at the same time, you kind of have to grab that opportunity. Uh, that's what I'd say. But none of that is uh, unique, glowing insight, I would say. But things that have served in my time there.
0: Interesting. And, uh, you know, you pointed out that, you know, uh, a lot of companies should go international, uh, you know, from day one. But uh, do you think it's, it's difficult to, to capture, you know, all markets at the same time? Uh, Should, should one focus on, on capturing, you know, one market and then, you know, looking at new markets? What, what is your thoughts on, you know, know, uh, how should a company look at expanding into, into new markets? Uh, if they ha- they don't have the, the funds, or they're not backed by, you know, say, soft bank, for example. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think th- the the key thing here is figuring out what are the markets where there's true commonality between the consumers in there? Um, And I would say if you wind back 50 years, geography was a major determinant of whether markets were homogenous or not, right? So people who live in India uh, would would have a very similar type of consumer preference. People who live in China would have a very similar consumer preference. Uh, And so as a result, expanding into each individual market was extremely high costs, lots of regulatory adaptation, lots of lingual and cultural adaptation. uh, And each of those markets truly behaved very differently. Uh, and I think the consequence of globalization is that you basically have a lot of markets, you know, removing the geographical boundaries, but where different niches now behave differently. So I think what I'm advocating is not so much that uh, you go everywhere and every market at once and try to do everything. What I'm saying is that geography is less and less of a determinant of how markets are truly different, um, and that you could actually identify niches and verticals that uh, are very cross-geography and behave very similarly across geographies. Um, So one classic example is gaming live streaming. Um, A lot of people think it's a very American phenomena. It absolutely is not. Um, The world's largest uh, gaming live streaming markets are in the Philippines and the UAE, uh, and then it comes to America, and then it's South Korea, and then it's you know, of course, China and some other big markets like that. Uh, you know, look at that and you know, the Filipino gamers and the UAE gamers and the American gamers actually have extremely similar cultural traits and geography and language are not the biggest determinants. It's the niche culture uh, that they're part of and, and all the types of behaviors inside it. Uh, and you see some of the things in online platforms like Reddit where you regularly see subreddits of people that are extremely international but have common interests and therefore behave very similarly. So what I focus on is instead you know, the markets that have lots of commonality that allow you to crack them in a similar strategy uh, instead of using geography as an artificial boundary because it's increasingly less relevant um, over time.
0: Uh, I, th- I think that's uh, interesting you pointed about uh, uh, the, the gaming culture uh, you know, and, and how uh, there's a lot of questionnaires in, in the... Uh, uh in in the patterns between you know among among all these nationalities and yeah you, know, you know i want to talk about uh mana you 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 part of uh, you know the soft bank you know, emerge accelerator uh, for diverse uh entrepreneurs um uh, and uh, you know you moved on from uh from soft bank and uh you know what really made you build mana and what are you trying to solve uh by building mana mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so when we first started Mana, um, the impetus is we wanted to create a world where everyone can make a living by sharing their passion. Um, so the fundamental frustration is basically that uh, you have this economy where tons of people work for 50 years in hierarchical corporates, uh, and then you retire and then you die, right? And, and that was it. And people are very unfulfilled. Uh, you know, the jobs were not exactly what they wanted, but they got forced into it to make money. Um, and what the internet has created is this unique opportunity where almost any niche can find its audience. Uh, and now you also have these extremely diverse monetization tools, um, whether it's purchases, purchases that are one off, uh, things like subscription, things like, you know, tips in live streams, uh, things like paying for a book by the chapter. Right? You have all of these extremely diverse monetization um, you know, mechanisms that didn't exist before. Uh, and so for the first time, any niche can find its audience. You've got all these monetization methods. Um, And individuals can start turning themselves into a business and turning their passions into business in a much more easy way. So we wanted to build essentially the platform that allows that to happen in the easiest way possible. Um, And so in essence, what our platform is, is uh, OnlyFans for Brains, right? Uh, It's basically anyone who wants to teach their skills, you know, you can create your personal profile, you can offer one-to-one sessions, one-to-many live streams, sell digital content, sell your services, sell your creations, right? All of that in one. Um, and, uh, it started in the sexual market for only fans worked very well for them, but we think it's going to be a massive thing for almost any vertical you can imagine. Uh, and so, yeah, that's the impetus why we started it.
0: Yeah. I, I really like how you said it's, it's only times uh, with, uh, with brains and, uh, uh you know, uh, when it comes to a marketplace, you know, uh, how did, how do you go kind of to solve, uh, you know, uh, the onboarding of, of. Uh, you know creators, uh, as well as you know people who could join and you know uh, take advice from these uh, from these influencers. You know what came first when you're trying to build it. To have an interesting stat for you to you denote know that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial.
1: Yeah, so it's a classic chicken egg problem. Uh, we started with a supply side, so we started Creators first. Um, our thought was that we have to have extremely high quality curators um, be curated at least at the start and eventually we can open up. But right now we want to be curated. Um, and we figured that if we find people who either have very high credibility from their past experience or have a large following, um, the the other side, you know, the demand side of the equation will come. Um, and so uh, the way we started was actually just by uh, writing a lot on LinkedIn. So um, I started writing about my personal story. I started writing a bit about why we started Mana, uh, the team and celebrating individuals that we hired in the team, stuff like that. Um, and that was extremely helpful. Uh, it, it ended up with a lot of organic demand. Uh, so to even to this day, we have not spent anything on paid marketing for Mana. Uh, so everything's come from organic demand. Um, and uh, we had lots of uh, very interesting people sign up all the way from people who are managing director at YouTube, uh, CEO level people at Google to um, you know people who are head of strategy at Airbnb, like stuff like that. Um, and uh, they started signing up because they've always wanted to run their side hustle. Um, or in some cases, they are going to start their own private business as a coach or as a uh, as a advisor in, any, uh, in many ways. And they want an easy platform for them to handle all of that. Um, and so we, we kind of figured that there was this hidden market so it started coming in more and more and then each uh creator would then start recommending some of their friends and so now we've got to the point where um we really have no idea where some some people have discovered us <laughs> you know last week we had an instagram creator who has 60,000 followers who produces uh, guitar videos and uh, dark animation, um, and uh, I have no idea how he discovered us, uh, but he found out about us, and he's he's now joining. Um, and there are lots of you know influencers and creators um, of that type, whether it's high credibility or high following. Um, and uh, yeah, it all started from a few LinkedIn posts
0: interesting uh, you know because I, I discovered uh about you from the linkedin posts and uh, uh you know you've done a great job in content marketing and well you know what, what suggestion would you give to people who are looking to you know stand out from from other creators and you know how do how do i add a you know a spiky point of view uh, in order to stand out from you know some people who are putting our content on linkedin or any other social media
1: yeah, um, my only advice is be extremely authentic. Um, I think the, the key for us was that we never thought of it as marketing. Uh, we never thought of it as, um, you know, we need to maximize the audience and measure how many you know, posts are generating the right demand. None of that. Um, and we didn't do that because we realized the moment we start measuring ourselves that way, we would start trying to shove like links into every post. Uh, we would start trying to, you know, um, put the sign up link somewhere or recommend some individual and stuff like that. Uh, and that's actually what decreases the demand. And what you want people to do is they want to be interested in you as a person or interested in the idea that you're talking about. And as a result, organically start kicking through your stuff and and start figuring out it. Um, you, you know, all the things they want to find out. So, um, you know, our strategy is basically be extremely authentic, be very open with both the ups and downs of the company, um, tell individual stories of how things happened, uh, and be extremely human in that process, right? Talk about the emotions, talk about the, uh, you know, the, the the sort of origins of why we made certain decisions and stuff like that. Um, that that's what captured people's attention. Um, and one final bit of advice, I think uh, I, I saw this from a guy called Sean Puri, who's a, you know, pretty famous uh, Twitter guy. Uh, And I thought he had a great piece of advice, which is every time you post something, instead of thinking about what you want the user to do, which is often how marketing thinks about things, like there's a CTA, you know, what we want to do. um, Think about what you want the user to feel. Um, Because most of the time, it's uh, the posts that make them feel angry or uh, emotional or empathetic or inspired, you know, those are things that make them then go pursue an action. And so um, how can you trigger the right emotion with your words? Uh, that's more important than trying to direct them to a specific action. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, I think, served us well so far. Uh, but uh, I can't say I've cracked the full model, but uh, it's been working very well for us in acquisition.
0: Uh, yeah, I think uh, being authentic and, you know, triggering the right emotion, uh, I think uh, I really liked it and I'm a big fan of uh, Sean Puri as my as uh, myself, I think he's done a great job in uh, creating the right sort of content on Twitter and, uh, you know, on, on Mana, uh, you know, how can a creator monetize, uh, you know, uh, do, do you have any uh, payment gateway which is linked and what would they have to, uh, you know, uh, how does the whole, you know, process really work out for a creator if he wants to monetize?
1: Yeah, so we've got full calendar, payment, and video integration on the platform. So if you host a one-to-one session, uh, you could use it as the Calendly. Right there's full calendar integration. You can integrate all calendars and check availability as well. So all that is there. Um, Payments is all done through Stripe. And so you could uh, you could take the money from there. Uh, the video is integrated, so you can host the video session on Mana itself as well. Um, and then for digital content, uh, it's very much the same thing. Um, again, you set your pricing, uh, you can uh, you know, control what you're going to sell, and then Stripe does all the payments. Um, at the end of each month, we do our payouts. Um, and uh, for the countries that are covered by Stripe, we pay out through Stripe. Um, if it's a country that's not covered by Stripe, we do it through TransferWise. Um, but either way, yeah, all the financial pieces are integrated on the platform.
0: And in general, when it comes to, uh, to creators, you know, how, how much of a weekly commitment, uh, or, you know, uh, a commitment from, uh, from the creator has to be there on Nana? Uh, you know, do they have to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, doing the sessions weekly or, uh, or monthly?
1: Yeah, it heavily depends on the creator and what they want to do. Um, so a big part of the ethos is basically just empowering the, empowering the creator to do what they want to do. So we have a huge range. We go all the way from um, senior executives who really have only time for like one to two hours a week. Um, so we have like partners of Latham and Watkins, or, you know, proper lawyers, uh, you know, to like the chief commercial officer of Founders Factory. They spend like two hours a week talking to people. Uh, and so um, they can restrict it like that. Um, all the way to people who are full-blown influencers or professional coaches, they literally do this as a job, right? And they do, um, you know, five to six hours, sometimes like eight hours of calls, um, you know, every day sometimes, right? So uh, you could go, you know, the whole range. Um and what we're trying to invest more time on now is doing things that also scale for the creator. So the reason why we created digital content and sellable digital content is that um, you can create the content once and just start selling it again and again. Um, we're going to one to many live streams soon and that will basically give people the ability to host classes and courses. Uh, and that again is obviously much more scalable. Um, and so, yeah, it's basically in the creator's hands. We want to give you the most amount of freedom possible uh, and then give you diverse methods of monetization. And then hopefully uh, you can you know make uh, the monetization work for you.
0: And uh, you know, uh, you mentioned that creators can uh, decide on the pricing, but uh, do you also help creators to you know decide on what is the right uh, sort of pricing? Because uh, you know, you don't want to uh, a creator to price it too low for people to feel that you know it's not valuable, or or to price it really high. You know, what are your thoughts on you know pricing strategies for for creators?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So we gave them the freedom. Uh, we absolutely still give guidance to you know, all the creators about this. And uh, so we spent a lot of time um, on a creator guide on Notion that basically gives a lot of detail on how you succeed as a creator, um, you know, how you could price yourself, what the general pricing ranges are for different types of content. Um, and it's quite interesting, too, because uh, you see broadly three types of pricing on our platform, right? So you know, the first type are these influencers who are essentially engaging their fans And so they tend to have very short sessions, things like five to 10-minute sessions, um, and charge something like $20 for for that amount of time, right? So when you convert it to an hourly rate, it's actually a lot of money. Uh, But then, you know, because it's short and the intention is not so much to go very deep in the subject, but just a chance to meet that influencer you always wanted to meet, uh, that pricing starts to make sense. So there's influencer-type pricing. the second type um, are these, uh, you know, professional coaches slash young professionals um, who are providing, uh, you know, quick mentorship sessions. And often they vary between um, offering things for free sometimes, because they just want to mentor, um, to, you know, offering something for money and then saying they'll donate for, uh, that money to an organization. So we actually have a donation function on the on the platform as well. So, uh, you know, often they will um, earn something like $20, $30 uh, for an hour, um, sometimes up to the maximum around $100 an hour. Um, but, you know, they would sort of balance it out between things they want to donate and things they want to charge. Um And then you have the high end of the market, which are usually senior executives who are providing real proper advice. And there it's more similar to the GLG alpha sites, like expert network type uh, things where people are charging like $500 for for an hour. Um, But what they do is like really deep expertise. Um, so pricing is very different depending on the market you're in and one of the nice things about being uh the platform we are is that we're less about getting people to come to mana and then find the expert it's more about um you know the creators setting up the profiles and then attracting audiences through their existing networks and so p- people see like very different pricing depending on the type of creature they're they're attracting um so yeah that, that's broadly how pricing works today uh, and
0: uh, you, uh, you know uh uh, Jim, when you're building the product you know how, how did you get to figure out you know what's the what's the right product market fit uh for your startup uh and you know what is what is the single most important metric uh or like the north star metric that you that you uh you know target with you with your team
1: yeah, um, so I don't think we've cracked it yet, um, but you know, in our short term, uh, we we basically created like three you know key north star metrics for us. Um, the first is we want to reach a, a thousand completed profiles in our target audience. So today we have like two thousand two hundred creators have signed up. Um, of those, we selected around four hundred to be part of the platform. We're going to boost that number to around a thousand uh, so that you know we really have people who are curated, but in that target audience are fantastic. Um, and then, you know, so we've done a bunch of work also defining that target audience. So we we look at nutritious, purposeful creators, um, and that spans a lot of different types of people. It goes all the way from, um, you know, people who are helping you get into better careers, get into better jobs and so on and so forth, all the way to things like, uh, living better by, you know, better wellness, better beauty, better fashion, better DIY, like stuff like that. But the common theme there is basically, um people who have a how-to content that help their audience become better versions of themselves. Um, So we want to reach 1,000 creators in that area. And the second piece is, um, we have monetization effectiveness metrics. Um, At the top level, we want um, between 10 to 20 lighthouse use cases of creators who have earned more than $1,000 within a three-month span of joining Mana. And for these people, it's just to demonstrate that there's actually great monetization. Um, And then under that, we're also tracking um, average monetization across the platform. So this includes things like um, the follower to monetized audience uh, ratio. So basically how many followers you have in your existing social media platforms um, and then how many paying customers you have on Mana, so that we could figure out what the conversion rate is. And we want to beat the average for that on platforms like Patreon, which typically have one to 2% uh, conversion. So we want to beat that number um and also of course uh the, the the sort of percentage of creators on mana who are currently monetizing right so how many are actually monetizing and then within that what's the percentage who have actually achieved more than the average uh minimum wage and then more than the uh you know average household income um over an annual span so these average monetization metrics help us figure out how we compare to the existing social media platforms things like patreon youtube and so on you know they're already well measured on these things and we want to prove that we're a better monetization platform than those um, and then finally, uh, we also set a uh, bar for our user experience as well. So um, we again want you know, 10 to 20 Lighthouse use cases for our learners. We ask them about um, what their intentions are before they, they start booking sessions, and then whether they actually achieved that intention, what those outcomes were, and, and how it's changed them. Um, and, uh, and we're also toying around with, we haven't decided whether to do this yet, but basically uh, d- deciding on a, a metric that's uh, something like every key action of mana takes no more than three clicks to achieve. Um, and right now, that's actually true for booking a one-to-one session, for example, leaving a review. Those things are true, um, but we haven't really measured that for for other things. So uh, we'll figure it out.
0: Uh, interesting that you, you you're looking at a lot of uh, different metrics uh, and you're tracking it well. And uh, you, you know, you've talked about uh, social media versus uh, you know the monetization metric, which is one to two percent. And do you would think, as a, as a creator, it's important to have. Uh, you know, build your own e- email list, uh, 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 uh or something which you can control, and 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 do you, do you, do you help your creators uh, build and some sort of an email list on Mana, or is it something they have to do uh, separately?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a big part of the ethos of Mana is to empower creators, give them control over their audience. Um, and so uh, in our case, you know, um, all the contacts that you build, um, we're now building out the sort of email list and subscription functionality to that email list, um, you know, for our creators. Uh, and we're also going to build um, all of that audience data to be exportable over time, right? So we want people to be able to move between platforms easily. Um, and uh, we're also exploring other monetization uh, methodologies. And these are, these are things we're thinking about, haven't actually uh, implemented yet. Um, but things like even when we actually introduce ad revenue at some point, in Mana, we want to split it between creators and actually users, right? So um, the thought is that right now you have these platforms where um, companies pay for ads, creators get 55%, and the platform gets 45%. But the user, the money was actually spent to acquire, uh, never gets any of that money. And then the user basically just spends, uh, you know, spends money on creator content and on the platform itself. So that's kind of crazy to us. So now when we do release ad revenue, we're thinking about actually, you know, getting the user to be able to receive part of that ad revenue and then being able to redistribute that ad revenue to the creators they really like right so being able to spend it on the people they like so um so a lot of this but you can see at the core of it the ethos is that we want to empower the creators so give them control over their audience list um give them the ability to export their data and then on the other hand giving the users more autonomy as well uh, and getting appropriately rewarded for the attention they're spending on created content
0: mailman is a Email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to uh, understand, you know, what do you think. Would be, uh, since, you know, we've been the, uh, we've been remotely working, uh, across the world for, for more than, more than a year now. Uh, what are your thoughts on the future of education and, you know, unbundling of education as well as companies? Uh, you talked about that, you know, you don't need to work, uh, in a company for 50 years now. Uh, and, and, and the span of working in companies is, is becoming shorter now. But what are your thoughts on unbundling of these companies? and uh, do you think it's going to be more of a creator or a freelancer uh, model going forward?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So Mana itself is built to be a fully remote company forever. Uh, okay. And so we um, have spent a lot of time figuring out documentation, figuring out team socials, figuring out how you know, team meetings could work, um, and all of this built around being a fully remote company forever. Um, and uh, within that fully remote culture as well, um, we have a good mix of like permanent employees and contractors. Uh, and uh, we don't think of contractors as purely you know, people you spend money on and then they can leave anytime, not like that. But as in, you know, even when they leave, they feel like alumni of Mana and they could always come back when they want to. So, you know, uh, one of the people who are on our team, who's like really fantastic, um, you know, he was with us in the first four months of the company. Then, you know, he got an internship at Spotify. So he decided to go there. And after a while, you know, he was like, actually, I want to come back and work for Mana for a bit. And he's coming back. Right. It's, uh, um, it's very fluid in, in that you know you can have people coming in and out all the time. What's critically important, though, is that you have a strong sense of culture and you have a few permanent employees who are managing and leading the team at the core of it. Um, this then translates into a lot of our thoughts on uh, what unbundling companies actually means. So. Um, Our thought and the reason why we keep reiterating the company mission to uh, help people make a living by sharing their passion is that over the next 100 years, we're going to shift from this company-based industrial economy into a person-based passion economy where lots of individuals can turn themselves into business. And critically... Um, Right now, a lot of the creator economy um, on, you know, YouTube and uh, Instagram, all sorts of things, they're still very focused on the individual, right? So the whole idea is that each individual is a unit, they have their personal channel, they make money on their own, and that's it. But what we think is going to be the next big thing is like how do you get these individuals to collaborate with each other, and how do you build the um, infrastructure to help them not just collaborate but get a lot of the traditional benefits that companies offer people. So you can imagine things like healthcare, insurance, uh, your pension—you know—all these types of things which traditionally companies offer. So you need to start figuring how that works out for independent workers. You need to figure out the collaborative structure for them to work together, uh, as I mentioned before. Um, And as this starts to happen, um, you become, you know, this alternate reality where companies are no longer really the dominant way where people have to work together. Instead, you have these fairly decentralized autonomous organizations um, where, you know, you have a few people who are initiating a project. They're the center of it. They're managing it. They're leading it. But at the same time, you can have, you know, people who are dedicated and passionate about that topic to collaborate with you to work on those. And they don't they don't get bound you know, in a company full-time employment contract forever. They can choose to work on it when they want to. Uh, and then when their commitment lowers down, they can you know, move out a little bit uh, more from there. And so for MANA, it's the same thing, right? Our team itself has a mix of people who are full-time and people who are part-time. Uh, and over time, you know, we don't expect to have an office. Instead, if we ever did have anything that resembled an office, it would be something like a MANA house where you, know, you would have uh, creators on the platform and like, m- like team members of Mana who are able to interact uh, in those spaces together and work together. So whenever we'll truly have like proper offices, but instead you just have ways for people to collaborate and you blur the lines between people who are employees or team members of MANA versus people who are actually users of MANA. Uh, it will be very similar uh, as the same thing. So yeah, that that's our vision of the world. But we believe that more and more people are going to be able to get freedom back in their careers, to make a living by sharing their passion. And then we're going to build the infrastructure around them for collaborations and basic rights like, uh, you know, healthcare and finance and pensions that enable that economy to work.
0: Interesting. And, uh, you know, when you talk about uh, uh, you know, the remote work, uh, there's definitely a, a, a culture change where people would want to work in remote first companies. But would but you think going forward, uh, maybe by next year, a lot of companies would ask, uh, employees to go back to, you know, you know working in offices. And, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on how companies and employees would look at dealing, uh, where, you know, they would have to go back to a three day or five day work week?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think we're already seeing that with a lot of traditional corporations, especially, you know, investment banks. You see JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley saying, you've got to go back. Um, you see some of the big tech players, especially people like Apple, who spent so much money building that amazing spaceship office, and now they're going, you have to go back. Um, so I, that's already happening. Uh, my personal opinion is that you, you, you kind of go one of two directions. You either go full-on office, always physically in the same place, or you go fully remote, I think, uh, in general, you know, blending the two is probably a mistake. So if you went fully physically in person, um, there are enormous benefits of that, of course, like you get a lot of, uh, you know, water cooler chats, you get really good team camaraderie, um, you can build great team socials together, you have a lot of unintentional culture that starts building. Um, there are downsides to that of, you know, people getting less freedom, having to travel, you know all sorts of things that were already well documented. Um, but you get a lot of the benefits concentrated fully remote, you can now hire internationally like the best talent around the world. Um, you can get people to collaborate um you know across different time zones and therefore cover more time zones than you did before. Um, with good documentation, you can actually allow um you know new onboarded people to onboard even faster than in a physical environment. Um, you have much less politics uh, because of the the lack of this sort of um you know closed space environment where people are seeing each other all the time. And of course, you get much better employee mental health. People are able to balance their lives much more and uh, get more freedom in their lives. There are obviously some large downsides here as well. Like it's much harder to build culture properly. It takes a lot of conscious effort to do it. Um, There are some downsides around, um, especially employees who don't necessarily have enough income to, uh, you know, get a good place to work from and so on. So you have to cater around that and find uh, spaces for the work in some cases. Um, But by and large, uh, you know, fully remote has enormous benefits that can be unlocked. The problem, I think, is in this hybrid model. Uh, when you have hybrid, you kind of get the worst of both worlds without really extracting the benefits. Um, you get the worst of both worlds because you get a lot of the politics. In fact, the politics uh, amplifies itself because you have all these people who are remote and then they're going, wait, all the people going to the office are getting all the attention. Now, now I'm not getting it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty bad that way. Um, It's hard to manage as a team because, uh, you know, you don't make the conscious effort to document everything in the way a fully remote company actually does. You don't change the way you socialize and the way you organize collaboration in the way a fully remote company does. And so you have these like physical based infrastructures that then have to cater to remote. Uh, And it just becomes a nightmare. Uh, And I see a lot of, um, you know, people working in companies where they say, oh, come into the office two days a week. And then, you know, the rest of the week, you you know, you're remote and then you can choose which two days of the week. And in the end, the bosses are like, wait, I don't know who's in or who's out. Um, You know, there's lots of politics building the people who are in. There's lots of clicks building, but the culture is not actually developing. The documentation is all over the place. It's a nightmare. Um, And so, so yeah, so in in general, I'm more of an advocate of going one of the extremes instead of trying to blend them together.
0: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Either one should be you know totally remote, or you know uh, an employee should uh, you know uh, go to the office. That totally makes sense. And uh, you know uh, there has been a lot of boom into into passion economy uh, companies. And uh, uh, you know the the two part to the question, you know uh, which uh, you know uh, create economy you know company do, do you think has done a great job and in building, you know, maybe the next unicorn. And uh, do you think it's a, it's a difficult space to crack? Uh, and uh, do you think that there'll be a lot of VC money going into, into this uh, sector going forward?
1: Yeah, so um, on the first part of the question, uh, the three that I really admire. Um, Maven.com, which is doing cohort-based courses, uh, and obviously, three fantastic founders, knee-deep in education for years, uh, you know, both with like West Cow, understanding CBCs from the ground up to... You know, Gagambiani, obviously, like Udemy and, and Nozzy Market Inside Out. They've done a fantastic job generating tons of like money for their creators already. Uh, I think they're, they they generate something like $4 million already, uh, you know, in the short space of less than a year. Um, and so, you know, they've done a fantastic job building that out. Um, another one is uh, Koji. So it was actually started up as a gaming company. They're now going to the BioLink space. Uh, and they turned their gaming app store into um, all kinds of apps you can apply to a BioLink. I thought it was a super smart approach. And overnight they became a really powerful competitor to people like Linktree and AI because those people are trying to build these features one by one. And they just have this massive app store, like thousands of apps that could be applied to BioLink overnight. So I thought that was fantastic. Um uh, and then the final one is fanhouse. Uh, I think they are, you know, really like at the forefront uh, of the battle to get platforms to concede more revenue back to creators. Um, they have a fantastic founder market fit. Uh and in this sort of SFW only fans model um, for, for influencers who want to be tighter to engage with their audience. Uh, and that's been really cool to see as well. So those three companies really admire them. Think they've done a really fantastic job. Um, in terms of the uh, difficulty of this market to crack. So the way I tend to think of the market um, is that you have these um, promotion sort of marketing channels in the front. Then you go into these centralized personal profiles. Then you have these monetization tools in the back and then the back office to manage your audience right so what that means is that you have these marketing channels at the front which are mostly social media today right TikTok, youtube so on and so forth where a creator goes to uh you know get their audience then you have these personal profiles which today look a lot like bio links right so things like Linktree, tree AI, where you aggregate all your audiences into your core content and right? so whether it's your personal website or a bio link uh it's sort of the centralized place where all your monetization happens then you have these monetization tools uh that's people like kajabi people like uh, teachable where, where you help them build out the monetization uh and then you know people can make money with that and then finally there's this back office where uh you know you might be managing your finances so people like stir where you split money off uh between creators um it might be legal tech uh you know for for managing and brokering partnerships with creators and brands uh, people that help you build merch right all these of things but Basically, they are uh, the back office layer that administrates uh, you know, the, the, the sort of business for the creator. Now, when I look at this market, I think there's enormous potential in the SaaS tools for monetization and the back office. Um, and I think they're going to be extremely successful. Um, but ultimately, there's somewhat of a cap to the potential of these businesses um, because you, know, you kind of rely on the creator economy to expand massively in order for this to work because most of those business models don't scale with the audience. Um, they often charge subscription fees for more and more features, but they don't scale as your audience scales uh, because otherwise it would have to start charging commissions and it stops making sense for the creator to pay for. It. So these SaaS tools kind of have this cap to the potential unless the creator economy massively explodes to become much bigger. Um, then you have the threat of the uh, you know marketing channels as well, where all these social media platforms are trying to eat into the monetization tools. They want to do more and more of the monetization themselves. So you have like YouTube building subscription, you have Twitter building superfans, all these types of things. And so these monetization tools over time will also face this threat of you know being eaten up from there. So look at this and go, SaaS tools, enormous opportunities right now, big reason why VC is putting in money, but over time there's a cap to their potential and there's massive threat from the marketplaces. The reason why we built Mana is that we felt first that central piece in this whole market where there's this personal profile that aggregates all of your audience uh, into your monetization tools, there's massive opportunity there because you can build lots of diverse monetization into that tool itself. And it can be the place where people funnel all their marketing to one place. But second, we're actually building our marketplace component a lot more. So we're almost a SaaS-enabled marketplace in a way. So we've got a SaaS tool and then you have the marketplace in front um, because... We think today the entire creative economy is facilitated by social media, and social media is actually a pretty terrible, very biased platform for people to attract an audience. It's fantastic for attention-seeking entertainers, but not very good for nutritious content and knowledge economy workers who want to sell themselves more. So we're spending a lot of time figuring out what the marketplace for knowledge economy actually looks like. Um, So when we look at this, we go, uh, we think the big opportunity is actually in cracking an alternative marketplace that gives uh, you know exposure to all the creators who are not built to win in an attention-seeking entertainment market. Um, and then also, in addition to that, building a SaaS tool that centralizes monetization effectively for people. Um, so yeah, it's a very difficult market to crack, but I think they're big opportunities. Uh, and uh, either way, you know, you, you can make it pretty successful. So.
0: Correct. Yeah, I I, uh, I agree with Weskow. She I had the privilege of getting Weskow from even on podcast. She came on episode number and we will put that in the show notes. And, uh, and, you know, thanks for talking about SaaS tool. I think, uh, that's, that's something which, which is definitely scalable and, uh, we'll see going forward, you know, uh, how, how things pan out. And, uh, you know, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book?
1: Uh, the Mum Test. Uh, so it's a it's a classic. It teaches you how to do user interviews properly. Um, I uh, always had my doubts about whether that methodology works, and then in the last six months, uh, I've been following the Mum Test to the T, and it's worked fantastically well. So I love that book, and I think everyone who's an entrepreneur trying to figure out problem problem uh, solution fit and prop and product market fit uh, definitely should read it.
0: Uh, that, uh, that's a first, uh, we'll put that in the show notes and I'll also you know, try to read the, read the book. And uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you, when you started working on Mana, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently?
1: Yeah, I would have bootstrapped and uh, started community first. Um, I would have got a community of people who are interested in the same passion, uh, focused on them and try to figure out what their problems were and then built the product around them. Uh, and then only raise money when I really got product market fit and wanted to scale. Um, you know, looking back, I think I raised a little bit too early. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of things still to figure out. So, yeah. All right. and, and do you have any favorite on tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? So- uh, yeah, I think Notion. Uh, it's you know ca- how we host everything on Mana. Uh, all our meeting notes are on there. We build our internet on top of that. Our documentation is all on that. Everyone who onboards like reads it through like that. Um, and for our creators, we have the same thing. We have a, a Notion space for them too, uh, with all kinds of guides for them, and uh, uh, and we show them our team and our internal workings as well through that. Um, so yeah, Notion's fantastic, super flexible tool, uh, and uh, been pretty critical to running our company.
0: We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, James, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Mana?
1: Yeah, uh, the best way is mana.live slash James That's my Mana page. You can literally book time with me anytime you want. You can just click the right calendar uh, and put some time in. Um, and uh, and of course, if you want to up your own Mana profile, just go on mana.live uh, and you can sign up anytime.
0: All right, uh, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, James, thank you so much for taking your time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Great to great to be on. Thanks for listening to the Life
0: Self Mastery podcast where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at
1: www.lifeselfmastery.com.